Where was God on 9-11? If there's so much evil and suffering in the world, how can we call God good if he doesn't stop all this? And since there is so much evil and suffering in the world, maybe God really doesn't exist. I want to welcome you to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the president and founder of Creation Training Initiative. You've just heard some very difficult challenges. And we're going to answer those challenges in this session today as part of our five-part series on the evidence for the existence of God. So far, we've covered our first two evidences in previous sessions. One was the cosmological evidence that this universe could not exist without a creator God. Then we discussed the design in life, the incredible design in all life that defies evolutionism. And in this series today, we're going to discuss evidence from the existence of morality. In other words, do real absolutes exist? Can we really know right from wrong? In the sessions following this, we'll discuss the evidence from the existence of non-material entities. And then in the last session, session number five, we'll discuss the reality of God's Word. So I'd like to start this session with a quote from Stephen Kumar who's got his PhD in the philosophy of religion, and he makes this statement. Every individual appeals to a moral law by which he or she makes moral judgments. Our moral standards provide a basis for our thinking and behavior. But what about the relativist who insists there are no absolutes and argues everything is relative? Well, let's start this then by getting a definition of what do we mean by relativism, moral relativism. And here's what might be a very good definition. Moral relativism is the view that there are no objective truths, that moral facts only hold relative to a given individual or society. According to this ideology, what is morally good for one person or culture might be morally bad for another and vice versa. In other words, there are no moral absolutes. Now, why should we learn about this topic, the subject of morality? Why should we be concerned about whether there really are absolutes and we, can we really know right from wrong? Well, I'd like to go through five different challenges why we need to understand and have an answer for this, these type of challenges does God really exist? What about moral absolutes? Are there really no such thing as absolutes? Can we really know right from wrong? Well, let's start with reason number one. Many of our students today are being taught this idea of moral relativism. This is the philosophy, again, that there are no such thing as absolutes. In other words, right and wrong are up to the individual. Students are being taught in many of our public schools that what they're being taught at home is not true. In other words, recondition them. Change what their parents are teaching to this whole concept of we really can't know right and wrong. Let me read a quote. This quote comes from a sixth grade social studies textbook. Matter of fact, it is the teacher's edition, and this is what they're telling teachers to teach today. Quote, stress that whether a specific action is right or wrong depends on the meaning that a certain group attaches to the action. In other words, it's up to the individual to determine whether it's right or wrong and not anybody else. Here's another quote from Dr. Sidney Simon. He's the co-founder of the Values Clarification Movement. And here's his instruction to teachers. A child comes to school with his values in a state of confusion. 
And since the parents and the church have contributed to that confusion, the school must help the child clarify his own values. Did you get what he just said? Forget about what your parents teach. Forget about what you learn in church. The public school system, the state-run controlled schools, will teach your children values based on the world and not on the Bible. Now, reason number two why we need to learn how to answer such questions, do absolutes really exist? You see, a lack of answer provides a reason why non-believers can justify why they don't need to believe in a creator God. In other words, they say, if you call God good, then why does he allow all this suffering evil to exist? And that is a challenge to Christians, and we must know how to answer that challenge. See, the atheists have used that argument that the God of the Bible is evil because he slaughters whole nations. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah, he slaughtered those whole cities. He reduced them to rubble. He slaughtered all the people in the city of Jericho. How about the ten plagues of Egypt? Or even in the book of Kings where he slaughtered all the Syrians. How can you call God good if he allows that to happen? Another way of saying this is, how can you call God good or even believe in God when he allows all this evil to continue? In other words, God really can't exist if he allows this to continue. Well, let's go to reason three for knowing how to answer this challenge. You see, when our students are confronted with this challenge, they don't have answers. And because they don't have answers, because they have not been trained how to answer these challenges, many of them lose confidence in God's Word, and many of them start leaving the church. James Edwin Orr, who was the chaplain for the U.S. Air Force, makes this statement. The problem of evil is one of the most crucial protests raised by unbelievers against the fact of God. And here's another quote from Ed Leroy Miller, author, makes this statement. The theologian's inability to supply the skeptic with a straightforward and satisfying answer to this challenge has made evil, no doubt, the biggest single stumbling block to a belief in a God of love. This challenge must have answers. And we need to train our youth. We need to train our youth leaders and our teachers and our parents how to answer this question. How can you call God good when he allows evil to exist? In other words, maybe God doesn't exist at all. This is the number one stumbling block why non-believers won't accept Jesus Christ. And it's because the church lacks answers. Well, let's go to reason number four why we must have an answer. And it's right in the Bible. It's called 1 Peter 3.15, and it reads this way. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear. In other words, the Bible commands us to have an answer, so there is no excuse. And finally, reason number five for knowing how to answer this challenge. You see, there is a sound theological argument for the existence of evil. The Bible tells us why evil exists. So it's in the Bible, meaning we have no excuse for not knowing how to answer this challenge. So let's go through what the Bible has to say for why evil exists. And let's go to Bible answer number one. And we see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, where God tells us he has a good reason 
for delaying the ending of evil. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In other words, God says this. He's patient. He's waiting for all those who will come to him to come to him. He's patient. But it also says, someday he will abolish all evil and he'll burn it all up. But in the meantime, he's patient, waiting for you and others to come to a saving knowledge. And then in Matthew chapter 13, we read the parable of the wheat and tares. Jesus did not come to this planet to eliminate evil, but so the kingdom of God would be amid the evil of the world until the time when he's going to destroy it all. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 29 and 30, the servants approach Jesus and say, why don't you pull up all the weeds? Why don't you pull up all the tares? And this is how Jesus answered. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. In other words, Jesus told them, it's not time yet. Let both grow together. But there will come a time when he's going to bundle up all the weeds, all the unbelievers, and they'll all be burned up. Now let's go to Bible answer number two. Why does God allow evil to continue? You see, evil can be useful in producing good. How, do you, how can that happen? How can evil be useful in producing good? Well, let's go to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, and it states this. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. In other words, God allows evil to continue, but he can turn that around. And because people see this evil and how God turned it around, many will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And also we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and it reads, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perhaps, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, God allows these challenges to occur. Why? To test us, to see if our faith is really genuine. Or in troubled times, are we going to run from God and blame God for all this? Or will we have the faith to stand firm and praise God? Will, is our faith really genuine? That's why he allows this continue. And then find Bible answer number three for why God allows evil to continue. Perhaps it would be a greater evil for evil not to exist because it would prevent man from being morally free. Well, let's look at this. If God created us so that we do not have a choice to do evil, in other words, we had no choice what to do whatsoever, we had no free will, 
then we would be much like robots. And that now transitions us into the final argument the atheists use against the existence of God. And it comes in three parts. There is evil in the world. Evil is incompatible with God. Therefore, God does not exist. That's the three-part challenge to Christians. We're going to take that challenge and give three responses, three parts to this response. Let's look at response number one. The skeptics are assuming evil is incompatible with God. You see, the skeptics must prove this assumption, and they haven't. And it's logically possible God has a very good reason for allowing evil to continue. David Hume, Scottish philosopher from the 1700s, gives the classical argument against God's existence. And he states, Is he God, willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Well, let me explain what he just said there. Another way of saying this would be, if God wants to prevent evil but cannot, then he's not all-powerful. Is he able to prevent evil but does not, then he himself must be evil. If he is willing to prevent evil and has the power to do so, then where did evil come from? In other words, either God does not exist or he is the creator of evil. That brings up this challenge. Did God create evil? Well, the Bible does reveal where evil came from on earth. It, let's start with God's creation. God's creation was perfect. It tells us that in Genesis 1.31. He declares his entire sixth day of creation very good. But this was destroyed when sin entered into the world. Rebellion. Now, Steve Coomer, again, Ph.D. in philosophy of religion, makes this statement about, does God, did God create evil? God created human beings with the potential and the capacity to choose good or evil. He created the possibility of evil, but not its reality. Thus, God is not the author of evil. In essence, sin is the abuse of free will, the misuse of what is good. A follow-on challenge to this might be, if God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, then why did he create them? Well, first of all, God created humans with the freedom to choose. The only alternative to this type of creation were to create people without a choice or not to create people at all. People without choice, folks, would be very much like a robot. No free will to make any choices at all. But instead, God created people with the ability to make choices, including right and wrong including the ability to accept Jesus Christ or reject him. It was all part of his sovereign plan of creation. Now, God, again, God's creation was perfect. And God himself is perfect. We see this in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 48, where it states, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, the entrance of sin into the world through Adam and Eve was a way to bring glory to God. Now, wait a minute. Are you saying sin brings glory to God? Not at all. So how does sin bring glory to God? See, God is holy, and he does hate sin. And the punishment for sin is death, Romans 6, 23. However, God had a wonderful plan 
to save sinners from eternal death through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sins. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection show us the great love God has towards us. We see this in Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, when we realize all that Jesus did for us and that all He did to save us, we really want to just shout for joy and give God the glory. You see, by creating Adam and Eve, God created beings to whom He would show His great love towards us, His mercy and His grace. Without that first sin, we might never have known His attributes of grace and mercy. This is how it brings glory to Him. We see His love towards us while we're yet still sinners. We see His grace and mercy, which is big enough to cover anything we have ever done. Not that sin is good, but without sin, we would never experience these attributes of God. And then response number two to the atheist regarding the existence of God. The fact of evil, folks, the fact that there is evil, nowhere eliminates the existence of God. It doesn't eliminate the reality of God. See, it's more to do with his character than his existence. So the atheists have the whole wrong challenge in here to begin with. And then finally, response number three to the atheist. The problem of evil cannot be legitimately raised or defended by the atheist. See, how can we answer the non-believer when they state, if God is good, then why does he allow death and suffering? Again, that statement is not a legitimate question from the atheist because it requires some moral standard, some absolute. Now, let's take a look at three parts to answering this last piece here. There are three parts to answering that challenge. How can you allow God to exist when all this evil goes on? Number one, we must understand the nature of the challenge from the atheist. Number two, we must challenge the atheist for why they believe their statement is even true. And number three, we must provide a solution. So let's go to part one for understanding the nature of the challenge. The challenge is based on some conclusion, based on some value or standard. That's the nature of this. When they challenge us and say, God is evil, and he allows all this suffering to come into existence. So therefore, we don't believe he even exists. That is a challenge based on some moral standard, some standard that an absolute does exist of what is good and what is not good. The challenge is the question about morality and the existence or not existence of absolutes. How you decide what is right and wrong. That's the nature of this challenge. See, if God created us, then he has the right to set the standards for what is good and what is evil. If not, then we can make our own rules. And that's where the atheists are coming from. Let's make our own rules because God doesn't exist. See, if God did not create us, then whoever in power makes the rules. And if that changes, somebody new comes to power, then they can change the rules, what we call right and wrong. In other words, these are not absolutes at all. They're just governed by whoever 
in power. Well, what does the Bible have to teach us on this subject? See, Bible does declare that God is the creator of all things and that he sets the rules. We see this in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 19, where it states, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said, not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Now, part two of our response that the problem of evil cannot be legitimately raised by the atheist is we are to challenge the non-believer for why they believe their statement is true. In other words, that God is evil. Here's our challenge. What is your absolute standard for measuring what is good and what is evil? That's our challenge to the atheist. If they're calling God evil, then there must be some standard for determining what is good and evil. See, all moral disagreements between people imply an appeal to some standard or behavior to which people are subject. Even the statement by evolutionists that creation is bad science and is wrong is imposing some value judgment. So the challenge to the atheist is this. What is your standard for what is good and what is bad? And who is the source of this standard? If the non-believer assumes there is such a thing as bad, then they must also assume good exists. Therefore, there must be some moral standard that allows us to distinguish between what is good and what is bad. However, if there is no moral standard, then we cannot legitimately raise the question or challenge that something is bad or something is good. It just becomes somebody's personal opinion. So the challenge to the non-believer is what is your moral standard and who makes that moral standard? And if they cannot answer that question, then they have no authority to make such claims that God is evil. Now, for the non-believer, they have four possible answers, four possible responses to this challenge. What is your standard? And I'm going to show that in each case, their answer actually condones the evil they say they do not like. So let's go to response number one from the atheist. The moral standard or the moral code, they say, is based upon personal opinion. Or maybe we're just chemicals and everybody's got made up of different chemicals. If we believe good is whatever invokes the approval of each individual, in other words, it's a matter of personal opinion, then that reduces morality to just a subjective response, which leads to chaos or anarchy. It reduces morality to what's ever right in everybody's own eyes. And if this is true then, then how can we condemn the murderer, the rapist, or the thief? Because they're doing what is right in their own eyes. You see, if it's a matter of opinion, it leads to anarchy. Another, what is right for you may not be right for me. So don't, therefore, you cannot put your opinions or your morality upon me. See, it just turns into chaos. Response number two from the non-believer or the atheist. The standard of moral code is based upon what benefits society. Just because the majority declares something is good, does not make it good. Ethics does not reduce to statistics. If this statement were true, it depends on what society determines, 
then many different societies have different rules and customs. And we can no longer declare any society evil. That would be a misstatement to do. See, different societies have different conventions. And we can no longer call Stalin or Hitler evil. Even though they slaughtered, each one slaughtered and killed millions of people, what would give you the right, based on this response, to say either one is evil? Then response number three. The standard of moral code is based on the laws of society. Well, societies have different laws, so we'd have many different moral codes. Plus, we're assuming all laws are good. We've had several laws in this country that were considered not very good. For example, in 1830, we had the Indian Removal Act. In 1850, we had the Fugitive Slave Act, which endorsed slavery. And in China, they have the one-child law. Then how about this? Beheading people because they do not agree with your culture or religion. How can you condemn that? See, different countries, different societies have different laws. So again, there's no absolute standard. And finally, response number four. Their last possible response. The standard of moral code is based on what makes people feel good. If that's true, then we can have many different moral standards because people have different feelings. This response allows for murder, stealing, torture, and rape. See, some people choose to do things even though they might know they're evil, but since it's going to benefit them, they think it's okay to do that. You see, in each one of these responses by the non-believer, they come up with no universal standard. Each response ends up condoning the evil they say they hate. Personal opinion, whatever benefits society, the laws of society, or it makes you feel good. Everyone falls short of a universal standard. You see, there's really only one solution to this. The solution is God's standards. Only the Bible offers a universal standard. And this is the last part. We must provide a solution. If the atheist cannot legitimately raise the question or defend it that God is evil, then we must provide a solution. How can we do this? Let's look at God's solution. And we'll start with the Ten Commandments. Those are still pretty good. There's nothing wrong with them. Then God's standard is also that He is the creator of all things. We see this in Genesis 1 and Colossians 1.16. He is the creator of all things, both visible and invisible. And if He's the creator... He owns us, and He can set the rules. We see in Romans 1, 19, 20, that one of His rules is, we have no excuse for not believing in this Creator. He tells us there He's given us all the evidence, and no one has an excuse for not believing. Then He says in Matthew 22, verse 37, I want you to have a worldview based on what I teach you. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said unto them, unto them Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy mind. Then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, God commands us to be perfect. You see, that's his standard. We are to be perfect as he is perfect. Right there, folks, every one of us, everyone who's ever existed, fails God's standard. In other words, no one's going to make it to heaven. We are to be perfect. And he reiterates this in Romans where he says, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But then God's standard continues. Don't stop there. 
Don't stop with it. We've all failed. Because this is who our God is. John 3.16 is the solution to our failure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is part of God's standard. That whoever comes to him will not perish. And then he gives us the final part of his solution in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this session, ladies and gentlemen, we have given the evidence for the existence of God based on the fact that there are absolute moral standards. We can know right from wrong. We have examined many different areas here. First, we showed five reasons why every Christian should know how to answer this challenge of why is there evil? Why do good, bad things happen to good people? Does God really exist if all this evil is existing? Second, we showed the Bible has answers for this continuance. God has a good reason for allowing evil to continue. And also we showed that evil can be useful in bringing others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we answered that challenge from the atheists, their three-part challenge. Evil exists. Evil is not compatible with God, therefore God does not exist. And we gave three responses to this challenge. The skeptics must, first of all, prove their assumption that evil is incompatible with God. The challenge we showed has nothing really to do with the existence of God, but more about his character. And we find, showed also, part three, that this challenge cannot even be legitimately raised or defended by the atheists. We showed that every one of the non-believers' answers ended up condoning the evil they say they hate. In other words, every one of the answers from the non-believers falls short of a universal standard. And then finally we showed the only universal standard is the Word of God. The evidence, ladies and gentlemen, shows there has to be. It demands that there is a creator God, some higher authority than man to set the absolute standard for how we are to live. And again, I'll bring up this scripture, Isaiah 45, verse 19. I have not spoken in secret, in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear.